From New Orleans, this is Mindset. Psychiatrist Dr. Nick Pajic interviews the leading lights of America's most fascinating city. Welcome to Mindset. I'm Dr. Nick Pajic. My guest today is John Sinclair. John Sinclair is 70 years old. For the last 50 years, he's been, among other things, an activist, a poet, a radio broadcaster, and a daily pot smoker. He is as well known for his love and advocacy of marijuana as he is for his other achievements, and it's partially for that reason he lives in Amsterdam now. This is John reciting an autobiographical poem called It's All Good. Hey, William, let me get one of them reapers. When you go to the cannabis cup in Amsterdam, they got people coming there from all over the world to test the finest marijuana grown by the seed companies of Holland for us to smoke and get high and enjoy the wonderful atmosphere of a society where they just don't care if you want to get high. Hey, that's just fine. Come on over here to Cannabis Cafe de Cowell and order up whatever kind of weed or hash you might want to smoke. Because it's all good. John Sinclair first came to New Orleans in 1976 for Mardi Gras. When he moved here permanently, he soon became the most recognizable voice and biggest personality on New Orleans jazz and heritage radio station, WWOZ. He recited his poetry around town with his band, The Blue Scholars. His poem, It's All Good, is a fitting three-word summary of John Sinclair's mindset. I'm a happy guy. What do you think is the key to happiness? Doing what you want to. And can you elaborate? Not doing what you don't want to. That's the key to me. That's the key I found. Do you think a lot of people uh, don't do what they ought to? Oh, I don't think a thought comes into it, but it's what you want to. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What I've noticed, a lot of people don't know what they want to do. A lot of people go through their whole life without really figuring out what they want to do. You knew what you wanted to do early on, so it seems. Yeah, fairly early, yeah. How did you, how did you figure that out? Well, I grew up in the 50s. I, I was born in 1941. Mm -hmm. When I turned 13 years old, 14 years old, rock and roll started. Mm -hmm. I had the first records by Chuck Berry and Little Richard on 45s as soon as they came out. That was the beacon that illuminated my life, that music. And so I just followed the music and uh, you know, I wondered where it came from and I found out that it came from black people. I, didn't, I grew up in an all-white little country town. Mm -hmm. I had no idea, but this stuff was the most beautiful thing in my whole world. So I wanted to find out why it was like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And then when I started investigating that, then I found about questions of social justice and economic justice and all these kind of things. And I became an advocate of these. What was your childhood like? It was just like on television, you know? It was, 
<laughs> it's really? like you could believe it. To, you know, it was middle class white American small town life at it. its most uh, stereotyped. Like, well, when I was coming up, you were supposed to either, depending on your socioeconomic level, you were either supposed to go in the army, go to college, work in a factory, work in an office, you know? Mm -hmm. And what's wrong with that? Mom, it just didn't appeal to me at all. What I want to do is go to dance. I went to dances about six nights a week. <laughs> you were really in the music. Yeah, I was a nut. It was your passion. Still am, you know. Well, I got my life off the radio, so that's why I have such an allegiance to radio in the form of music on the radio, because without this, I would have been a whole different person, you know. What do you mean? What, 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 what have you been? <coughs> well, in my household, the idea of music was what they played on Ed Sullivan. My dad never missed Ed Sullivan on Sunday night, the Ed Sullivan Variety Show. Mm -hmm. Middle of the road, popular white people music, yeah, you know. Yeah. I never would have strayed, and that would have been all I knew about, so. I felt like they piped this music into my bedroom, and I found out about this other world that I would have had no idea, you know? What was it like for you then to discover this other world? It was thrilling. Mm -hmm. Thrilling beyond belief. You know, and I'd be listening to my little radio in bed at night longer than I was supposed to. And you'd hear songs would come on the radio and they'd just make you sit up straight in bed and say, wow. <laughs> I mean, I can remember hearing, I remember hearing Search Him by the Coasters the first time they ever played it. And then the guy turned it over and played Young Blood on the other side. And I just said, Jesus Christ, what great <laughs> records, you know what I mean? And I was just reading the thing. They put out two to three hundred new 45s every week for a, that period from the 50s. It's a lot, yeah. And a lot of those were records I still listen to today as often as I can, you know. What did you think you'd... Ray Charles, James Brown. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, you hear Fats Domino, you hear that for the first time. It's just like bells going off. So you really didn't have difficulty following the path that you chose or, uh, or picking a path. And no, no, that was easy. It was just the pull. I ran into problems with the police because of my recreational drug use. You know? Tell me about that. What was that like for you? It was, it was awful. Yeah. <laughs> to sum it up in one word. Did it take its toll on you? Well, I spent three years in prison, you see. Where did you spend in... in, in Maximum. The well, the first, I did a six-month sentence in a workhouse, and then the House of Correction and I wasn't properly corrected. So then I did two and a half years in maximum security prisons. What then was I overturned the law. I was a, fought the law, and I won. <laughs> right, and they overturned it after there was uh, John Lennon, Yoko Ono. Yeah, 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 you know about that. Yeah, yeah. and um, Stevie, Wonder. Stevie Wonder. There's 15,000 people. Phil Oaks. Yeah, and, and then three days later they say that they overturned yeah. So what's it like? Up till that time, they wouldn't give me an appeal bond. I did two and a half years without an appeal bond, even though my appeal was successful. And I overthrew the law. 
So I was a target guy. I was a, an activist. I was yeah. first a cultural activist, not a political activist. And um, bent on offending the authorities in every possible way, I'd have to confess. <laughs> what? So they what? say, why did they do that to you? I say, well, I insisted. <laughs> <laughs> now, you were in prison for, was it selling two joints to some an undercover cop? Or no, no, I gave a undercover policewoman two joints. So she asked you? Yeah, she, asked me for a joint, and I gave her two. It was Christmas time. Mm -hmm. And she, she, you didn't demand payment for that even? No. I was hoping it might meet, lead to a social assignation, but I, I had no idea she was a police officer. What was it like for your, you and your family? And were you, oh. did you talk to your mom and dad at the time when that happened? Yeah, you know, my mom and dad had a transformative experience in the course of my criminal career was a marijuana smoker. The first time I was arrested, and they came down to bail me out. My parents sat in the courtroom waiting for me to be brought out and bond set. And they saw the parade of poor, beaten down defendants, prostitutes, drunks, disorderly persons, and they saw them dragged before the, the judge and then the jailhouse lawyer, the, not the jail, but the lawyers that specialized in the dregs of society. Mm -hmm. They were, that was like a, a white man's club. The judge, the prosecutors, the attorneys, they were all part of the same thing and these poor black people were dragged in, mm -hmm. some really beaten down white people. Mm -hmm. were dragged and run through this thing and then sent to jail or whatever they were doing with them, fine. My parents, who were Republicans and upstanding white people from a small town, they couldn't... I, I tried to tell them about injustice and racial discrimination yeah. Yeah. and these things from my investigations. and. And they just had no basis for believing the truth of it because they, uh, it's like today. Yeah. When they saw the black people in the Superdome waiting to be taken out of the flood, these people had not seen poor black people in a generation or two because they just don't show them on television yeah. unless they're up against a car, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, my parents saw this and it just completely blew their minds. And they understood. Not that they always, you know, I was pretty far out, but they didn't really endorse everything that I was trying to do, but they understood where I was coming from, which yeah. was a huge, most people in my generation, their parents had no empathy whatsoever, couldn't under, you know, yeah. they were just problems. <laughs> you know, they were just yeah. creating problems. They didn't have any emotional support basis. Well, my parents, that transformed their outlook. Well, the first time I got arrested, my dad got me out of jail, but that was for being drunk at a Bo Diddley concert. <laughs> <laughs> you must Bo Diddley and the Shirelles. I'll never forget that. What were you drinking? Well, man, they had this great thing in Michigan called Orange Driver that was immortalized in a couple of songs. 
It was vodka, white wine, and orange juice in a bottle like that for a dollar eleven. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. Yeah, it was forty proof. It was twenty percent alcohol. Speaking of songs and being immortalized in songs, John Lennon wrote a song about you called "John Sinclair." Yeah. Did you like the song itself? Yeah, it's like a blues. What, what's Probably it like? The funkiest ha- song he ever wrote. I the, the funkiest song wasn't as big as sour, but I mean, <laughs> but by the time it came out, I was already out. Did you know John? Had Lennon? I still been in prison, it probably would have gotten. It would have probably got me out then, you know. Oh, like uh, Hurricane Carter, you know. Did you know John Lennon? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I knew him afterwards. I didn't know him before. He just did this as an act of great generosity. So, I mean, let me get, understand heart. this. Your mindset. You're in jail. You're in prison. Prison, Did, yeah. did you know... Maximum security. So in maximum security, what, what does it look like to you? Like, when you're in there, what's actually happening? Were you scared? Well, I'm scared now. I mean, I'm just scared because the people you're dealing with are... What are you scared of now? Oh, I don't know. The governor here, Jarvis Red, he wants to close the museum. I don't know, just the ugliness of life, the Romneyization of America, you know? Yeah. Where a guy who has a company that specializes in shutting down businesses, killing people's pensions, destroying their jobs, and can come up and say, vote for me because our president is a failure and I'm going to create jobs. A social order is totally based on lying, greed, and heartlessness. Yeah. That's what a world I live in. So yeah. I've found a way to have a mental world that isn't anything like this, and I try to live there, as well as among my friends who share my outlook. You wrote a manuscript in prison, I think, called Music and Politics, right? Yeah, I did. Wow. So it's, it's You've done your research on this guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so and then so when you meet John Lennon for the first time, like uh, obviously you were a Beatles. Not only fan. that, when I ma- I managed a rock and roll band in Detroit called the MC Five, mm-hmm. and when they started Apple Records, of course we were one of the thousands of bands that sent our press kit and our forty five, hoping to get a deal with Apple Records. <laughs> Did you get a deal with Apple Records? No, no, no. no. Well, but I mean, that's. But the, we ended up with Electra, so that worked out pretty, pretty good. That's pretty good. I mean, so. But we liked the Apple idea. Did we you, liked any progressive ideas. Did you yeah. agree with John Lennon's philosophy? Um, and did you get along with him? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He was a great guy. Were you close? Well, we were this close. I don't know. I mean, like, intimacy, like, friendship-wise, did, did you know, were you more political activists together, or was it more like... Well, yeah, we were going to do a big project together in 72. But see, then I'm, I'm the guy who got him in all the trouble with the government. You're the guy that, what, say again? Got him in all the trouble with the government. Did you see the movie U.S. versus John Lennon? I did. And, and so... That's did, my fault. So how, I'm not proud of that, but there it was. Well, I mean, how did, how did you get him in trouble with the government? Well, because he came to my rescue. And then we were going to do this for others. In fact, we were trying to create a tour that would go around the country following Richard Nixon during his re-election campaign. If he was going to St. Louis, yeah. We would put on an event like the John Sinclair Freedom Rally for whoever in St. Louis needed help. Who needed it, yeah. 
with local bands and went in the, you know, it was a great scheme. And just haunt Nixon and finish up with a three-day free festival outside the Republican Convention. <laughs> so they couldn't have this happen. You but see. you say that you feel bad about what happened to John Lennon. Then. Yeah, bad. What, did John ever tell you uh, or resent you for it? No, no, no nothing no, like that. No, it wasn't my fault. Yeah. <laughs> but you say you felt bad about it, though. Like something you've carried with you for a while. Well, not that way, but I mean, the truth is that had he not rescued me, he would have had a smoother path. Right. Did you guys ever talk about it? Not really. What was it like for you then to kind of enter into that phase of your life? Because I think you raised kids around that time, too. Yep. Like My second daughter was born while I was in prison. Oh, wow. I missed her first two years. And my first daughter was two and a half when I left. No, two when I left and four and a half when I got back. Well, what was that like to have your daughter? Oh, it was horrible, man. Just horrible. It's just horrible. But my experience as a prisoner was pretty much the same as everybody else in prison. It's a, yeah. it's a leveling experience. Everyone is treated the same. I was better off than most because I had people on the outside who cared about me and they were trying to get me out and I had lawyers galore. And mm -hmm. Were you spiritual at all at the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in what way? I, well, I took peyote in 1963. That was my first psychedelic experience. And then I took a lot of acid after that until about 68. Mm -hmm. What did it do to your mind? What were the just opened my mind and also I was just, I don't know, I consider it spiritual. When you were tripping then, what what was the spiritual, what was that like? Because I think listeners who haven't used don't know. Right, right. And it's so hard to explain, that's why I don't ever talk about it really. And also it's, it's only my business, you know. And I absolutely. Mean, when I meet people and they're spiritual leaders and I have friends who are like this, and you always kind of watch for your wallet, you know? Why? <laughs> Why? Well, I think spirituality is a thing that you manifest through your behavior mm -hmm. <laughs> and the way that you treat other people and the things that you do in life and the integrity that you stand for and all that. I don't think it's about taking a class or reading a book or going on a retreat. Or, yeah. I mean, not that I'm saying anything against those, but I don't think that that's not the way I look at it. How it's important? your relationship to the universe is the way we used to say. I know it sounds kind of mushy, but... No, I mean, how important were using drugs for you in your early years and getting in touch with the universe so you could live this life and fight for people's rights? It was all important to me. If, the, if you didn't have you drugs... You see, the difference was, before the psychedelic experience, I was already, I wanted to be a beatnik. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a poet. I wanted to be like Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs and my literary heroes. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to be around black people who played jazz and blues and R&B. And I tried to figure out a way to fuse these things. And then, But then it was all just about creating a little place where you could do this 
without too much threat from the police, you know? Well, how did the... <laughs> and then when you started taking psychedelics, you know, became infused with a messianic zeal. And you wanted everybody to be able to experience this beautiful thing that you had found that was so far different from the, I don't know, the ego-driven paradigm of everyday reality. Of the 1950s. You know? of Getting everything for yeah. you and yours and yeah. all that kind of thing. So this was a very big inspirational force in that you wanted to turn people on. Mm -hmm. Tim Leary was very uh, powerful in the leadership of this solo oh, too. Yeah. Although you would find few greater egomaniacs than Tim Leary, but with all due respect, but well, it's, it, but the idea that he was that he uh, popularized of service and of greater, you know, LSD. Uh, wasn't a recreational drug. <laughs> it wasn't something you took to get high and have a good time. It was an introspective like drug. Like weed, say, yeah. you know. Yeah. Weed, you can do a lot of great things with that, but... You mean that LSD was more an introspective experience? Well, and first it was a huge experience, and it was all-encompassing for about eight hours. Mm -hmm. You were on this trip, which you had no idea why it was happening or where it was going to take you. Mm -hmm. Or if you were going to get through it. Mm -hmm. So it was really a strenuous thing. And also we weren't taking it to, for recreational, but we were taking it as part of a quest. I'm speaking for myself and the people I know, but yeah. you were trying to find out you know, the spiritual quest. Yeah. What does this all mean? You know, why am I here? What am I, you know, all that kind of stuff. Have you reached any opinions about those questions or answers? Yeah, I did early on. And, what do you uh, think? Why do you think we are here? Oh, no, I never really solved any of those. <laughs> <laughs> but what I learned was to accept. Acceptance is the greatest lesson that I learned as far as reality is concerned. Accept what? Accept reality. What's happened, what's happening. You know, I found this as a guiding principle because I find most people that I came in contact with, they felt like if only they could have changed something they did, mm -hmm. their life would be different. Mm -hmm. But their fate was spelled out for them. And on uh, acid, I kind of realized that it was the other way around. There was nothing you could do about what had happened before except to accept it and mm -hmm. try to learn from it. Mm -hmm. But with respect to the future, you could do whatever you wanted, whatever your mind would you, you conceive. If you diligently pursued that, mm -hmm. despite whatever obstacles there might be, then there would be many, Mm -hmm. But you could do what you wanted to do. You could influence your reality. That's to me, if I put it in a nutshell, that was the thing I learned. To accept what happened and what's happening now, but to look at the future as something that you could influence yeah. drastically. I think know? that's a powerful message. Yeah. 
Yeah, it worked for me. Have you lived your life that way? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. These were powerful lessons to learn as a young man of 22, 23, 24 years old. You know? In your adult life, you've smoked pot and every day. Every day. It's been part of your, your 50 years, lifestyle. Yeah. When I see that in, in my own patients and whatnot, sometimes it connotes that there's an unhappiness and someone's unsatisfied, and, or maybe there's an anxiety, like an anxiety right, problem. Right. Have you suffered from any of that stuff? where you may have been treating uh, with weed? No. You don't think so? I like to get high. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, that's always been my position on it. I, I, I come as an activist. What you come you... into conflict with the more serious, my, the legal parts yeah. of the normal. And, well, can and you... I say, well, you know, what's wrong with getting high? Everybody else gets high. Why can't we get high? You know what? What's ignominious about getting high? Everybody's... Can't wait to get to the liquor store to get high. Well, so what? Not everyone. I mean, well, people, some people use that, but use people it. who do that. You but know? you, you see, a there's a double standard. You can you can drink, but you can't. Well, sure, so. it's a double standard. Yeah, because it's worse than a double standard because there's no ill effects of marijuana, except I'm sure in the psychological well, profession, you probably run across some, some of yeah, them. Yeah, some cognitive people effects, can go too far and get attacks. out of touch with reality and stuff. But as far as getting in the car and running into some people on the, you know, you don't get that. Have you as had far any... as people dying from an overdose of marijuana, it's never happened. Have you ever had, um, and I agree with you, I think that the effects of alcohol are probably more ravi ravaging to your body in, oh, in some it's respects. Oh, it'll kill you. But do you find that you, have you ever... I attribute my longevity to not drinking and taking my vitamins every day. Have you ever had any <laughs> ill effects from uh, smoking weed, like panic attacks or getting no. paranoid at all? Well, I've gotten too high from time to time, but usually... You mean like too high, I mean you got paranoid? Yeah, well, you just, yeah, you felt like you were overwhelmed, you know? You mm -hmm. get too high, you... <laughs> I don't know how to say it, but you just like, uh, <laughs> I hope I come down this time, you know? <laughs> have, have you had a period of time where you did not smoke weed and in, in your life uh, other than being in prison? <laughs> Incarceration. <laughs> no, no, never by choice. It perfectly agrees with me. Okay. And now I live in Holland, where you buy it over the counter, you smoke it socially in a place. Yeah. What do you think about this? I the like socially, that. it works out. There's an idea that if you liberate, if you allow, you know, they talk about gateway um, drugs. Do you None of that. They've got this. They've been doing this 40 years in Holland since about '72. Right. What they find is that about 23 percent. Mm -hmm. of citizens smoke weed mm -hmm. year in and year out. So it's just kind of So the young flat. ones coming up, the people that get older, they stop smoking weed. Either they can't deal with it, their job or whatever, you know. Yeah. If you got too much on your mind, I imagine it could create some problems. I mean, too many worries and, you know. But I find if I, my worries aren't so great and if I have some, I just sit and get high and then relax and try and solve them with my mind. Well, it seems like you followed your passions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I learned from them. That's what I learned from black people, you know, because they didn't have anything. Yeah. They didn't have anything. They had no opportunities. They didn't, 
You know, when I didn't want to go to college anymore, and I had guys on the street tell me, man, we wish to God we could go to college, but that's not going to happen. But you, you don't feel guilty. I mean, mm-hmm. take what you can get from this, mm-hmm. you know. But I learned from, uh, from black America, if you want to put it in a two-word phrase, that, you know, you got to do the things that make you happy because... You don't know what else you're going to get. (laughs) My guest on Mindset today has been John Sinclair. At 70, John's energy and passion shines as brightly as it did at 20. Although he lives in Amsterdam, John Sinclair visits New Orleans regularly. You can see and hear John when he's in town, or you can hear him anytime online on Radio Free Amsterdam. You can also get more information about John Sinclair by following the links on our site, itsneworleans.com. Thanks for joining me on this edition of Mindset. I'm Dr. Nick Pajic. Mindset is produced by Grant Morris. Technical direction by Eric Murrell. Mindset music is composed, arranged, and performed by Alexis Marceau and Sam Craft. Mindset is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com. Summer's almost over, but at Old Navy, the styles are as hot as ever. Get to Old Navy now for 30% off all jeans, 40% off all dresses, and 50% off all tees. That's right, get 30, 40, and 50% off all your favorite styles for the whole family, plus up to 75% off clearance. Hurry in fast. These deals won't last. The sale ends soon at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid in-store 822 to 828 and online 822 to 824. Excludes in-store clearance, bubbles, active, licensed, and men's package tees.